Trade Review, Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at TuneReview, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-E-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M or by calling 0141 772 That's 0141 772 This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday, the 4th of October, 2023, from the Voices section. New York trial begins into Trump business dealings. This article is by Alison Rowett. The defendant was not required to attend the hearing in the state Supreme Court in Lower Manhattan. But there is no show without Trump, right? There have now been enough of these court appearances for a routine to be established. In flies the former president in his campaign jet. A Secret Service-led motorcade transports him to the courthouse. Mr. Trump sweeps in and out, looking bored but dignified. Then it is back to Mar-a-Lago to watch the campaign contributions come in and the sales of memorabilia tick upwards. This time it was different. This time it was personal. Mr. Trump, the organization that bears his name and two of his sons, are accused of misrepresenting the value of his assets to obtain better loan terms and other benefits. The judge in this case has already ruled that he exaggerated the size of his Trump Tower penthouse and overvalued Mar-a-Lago. What remains now is to fix penalties. Attorney General Letitia James, leading the prosecution, and a Democrat, has in mind a fine of $250 million, that's £207 million, and a ban on Mr. Trump doing business in New York. It sounds almost ludicrous, like the proverbial angler describing the size of his catch, the 45th President of the United States has found out that size really does matter. For a man thought incapable of being embarrassed, this trial is deeply embarrassing. Mr. Trump is no stranger to legal action. For him and his lawyer and mentor, Roy Cohn, suing or being sued was just part of doing business. But for Mr. Trump to be exposed as not as rich and successful as he claimed, well, that has to hurt. It is the kind of move some loser candidate on The Apprentice might pull, not the boss himself. It leaves him open to the charge he hates, that he was only ever the son of a rich guy who gave him a start in business and not a self-made genius in his own right. The fraud case has cut him deep, 
as was plain from his behaviour inside and outside the courtroom on Monday. Red-faced, scowling, shaking his head as the prosecution set out its case. This was not the Donald of the campaign trail relishing the fight. This was a bully on the back foot. Outside in the corridor, flanked by political advisers, he held court, calling the proceedings a sham and a scam. Just so you know, he added, my financial statements are phenomenal. That's material for the late-night shows just writes itself. Donald J. having a strop made for great television, but there was more to it than that. This is just the start of a road that could lead to who knows where. The New York trial is expected to last three months. Mr. Trump then faces four trials on multiple charges in different states, plus another civil case in New York, all this while running for president. It is a crazy notion. The proceedings in New York show how even a relatively straightforward trial, one that is judge-only, can take months to play out. The remaining jury trials with lists of witnesses will be more complex and take much longer. How is any of this possible? If convicted at any point, can Mr. Trump still run? If elected, can he govern? Helpfully, history provides some precedent in the form of one Eugene V. Debs. He ran for president three times, on the last occasion while he was a guest of the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. Prisoner 9653 had been sent to jail for opposing U.S. involvement in the First World War. There was nothing in the Constitution to bar a convicted person from running. So he did. On Election Day, 1920, it was only being a lifelong socialist that stopped Mr. Debs getting any further in his aims, though 915,000 people did vote for him. So Mr. Trump, should he be convicted, can stand. It is the next bits that are tricky, the campaigning bit and the being commander-in-chief bit, Various prosecutors have warned Mr. Trump about commenting on his case. As he showed in New York on Monday, he is willing to ignore any such advice. Yet, if he should be the Republican candidate, how can he not mention the proceedings against him? There are all kinds of theories and scenarios being suggested. Should you have a spare few hours, it is worth taking a trip down the rabbit hole just to see how bizarre the situation could become. The best bet is that the courts will have to decide, and we know how well that turned out in 2020. Erwin Chemerinsky, a professor in con constitutional law at the University of California, Berkeley, told the New York Times, We are so far removed from anything that's ever happened. It's just guessing. One of the known unknowns is how the American public will react to seeing a candidate or a president being put through trial after trial. The polls have Biden and Trump still neck and neck. One poll caused much cheer in the Trump camp by putting him ten points ahead. 
but that was dismissed as an outlier. Republican voters are keeping the faith with Mr. Trump, despite his legal travails, or perhaps because of them. What if his view that he is the victim of a witch hunt by a Democrat-controlled justice system takes hold in the wider community? Where does American society go from there? While it is hard to see any Democrat feeling sorry for Mr. Trump and switching their vote, that is not the point here. Outside and inside America, subjecting a candidate to this number of trials in an election year looks unfair, and that is putting it mildly. Yet, what is the alternative? Proceedings could be placed on hold until after the election. But that adds new, greater complications to the mix. A victorious Mr. Trump could, in theory, pardon himself, splitting America down the middle as he does. A second-term President Biden stepping in to forgive and forget? No chance. No wonder politicians favor impeachment, imperfect though it is. In New York, the world has been given clear sight of the wheels starting to turn in the justice system. America is heading to a destination unknown, on a road no one has traveled before. We can only wish her well. This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday, the 4th of October 2023, from the business section. Scots nurseries face going bust over free childcare funding failures. This article is by Martin Williams. Scots nurseries face going out of business, as an analysis found just three of Scotland's 32 local authorities are increasing early learning and childcare entitlement to meet rising costs due to soaring inflation and the cost of living crisis. The National Day Nurseries Association, NDNA, issued the warning as it emerged that childcare businesses in around a third of local authority areas began this academic year without knowing how much they are being paid for funded places. There are now growing concerns about how the Scottish Government's flagship free childcare policy introduced three years ago is being delivered. The Convention of Scottish Local Authorities said that it is working with the Scottish Government to review the funding process to consider any further lessons and possible improvements. All children over three years old qualify for 1,140 hours free care per year. The NDNA say that nurseries in Scotland are constrained by the funding rates given to them for delivering the 1,140-hour childcare expansion for three- and four-year-olds and eligible two-year-olds. A study carried out by the NDNA of all Scottish local authorities has discovered that only 56%, 18 councils, were committed to increasing their funding rates but this ranged from a 1.35% uplift in Falkirk to 15.48% in the Shetland Islands. The NDNA say the average increase in hourly rates is only 36 pence per hour for children over three, 
When the free early learning and childcare policy was launched, the Scottish government said that up to 130,000 children would be able to benefit from 1,140 hours of free early learning and childcare (ELC) each year, available to all three and four-year-olds as well as two-year-olds who needed it most. What was described as a flagship commitment was to save families' childcare costs of around four thousand nine hundred pounds per child each year, as of twenty twenty one. The Scottish government said the expansion from six hundred to one thousand one hundred and forty hours of funded ELC (early learning and childcare) was made possible by a close working partnership. Between the Scottish government, local authorities, and providers across Scotland, underpinned by a landmark multi-year funding agreement, an audit Scotland analysis has said the increased funded hours, a statutory duty of councils, has left the childcare sector fragile. There are now further concerns that an increase in the national living wage. Will tip even more over the edge. The Chancellor Jeremy Hunt confirmed that it would rise to at least eleven pounds an hour from next April. The national living wage, as it has been officially called since 2016, is the lowest amount workers aged 23 and over can be paid per hour by law, and is currently ten pounds and forty-two pence an hour. In Scotland, all nursery providers delivering the 1,140 hours of free childcare must pay staff the real living wage, which is always higher than the national living wage, and usually rises in line with it and the cost of living. The NDNA study found that of the 32 local authorities, Midlothian Council did not respond. And ten local council rates were still under review. These had included Glasgow, East Lothian, and Renfrewshire. In its financial sustainability health check of the childcare sector in Scotland, published earlier this month, the Scottish government found that providers' costs were going up by fourteen percent this year across all types of daycare of children services. Only five Shetland and Clackmannanshire councils committed to meet those extra costs. The NDNA say that three areas—Dumfries and Galloway, Angus and South Lanarkshire—had been offering at least ten percent more than last year, and a further nine councils will be giving between five percent and ten percent more. They say that despite inflation still running at just below seven percent, five local authorities were not increasing their funding rates for providers. These included Edinburgh City Council and West Lothian. They said that meant a real terms cut in funding for partner nurseries in these areas. Jonathan Broadbury, NDNA's director of policy and communication, said. Our members are telling us 
that they have serious concerns about their sustainability and their ability to continue delivering funded early learning and childcare places. Their biggest challenge is recruiting and retaining their staff. Our research into funding rates that providers are receiving from their local authority is not encouraging, with only three that have increased their funding rate sufficiently to allow nurseries to be able to pay their delivery costs. We need to see the differential funding rates between council and partner providers addressed. The SNP's policy to provide parents with 1,140 hours of free childcare can be used in either council nurseries or with a private childcare provider. But there have been fears that the unequal funding meant public sector nurseries can pay staff 30 to 50% more than private nurseries. As a result, some private childcare providers have lost more than half their staff as they look for jobs in council nurseries. The NDA said it is concerned that the latest analysis by the Scottish Social Services Council shows that 26% of senior practitioners and managers from nurseries in the private, voluntary and independent sector had left for lower qualified but better paid jobs in the public sector. With local authorities giving better funding rates to public sector nurseries, it is no surprise that private and voluntary nurseries are seriously worried about their future, said Mr Broadbury. Meanwhile, the Scottish Childminding Association has said there has been a drop of 34% in the childminding workforce, while almost 2,000 childminding businesses have closed, meaning more than 11,000 places have been lost, and he warned that trend could potentially double by 2026. A Convention of Scottish Local Authorities spokesman said, Local authorities highly value their partnerships with funded ELC providers in the third sector, private sector and childminders who are vital to local childcare offers. Under the approach agreed with the Scottish Government, Council sets sustainable rates for ELC provision to reflect local operating contexts from within the budget available to them. At a time when councils are facing substantial pressures on their own budgets, including reduced ELC funding allocations, they have continued to increase the level of funding to providers by an average of over 50% since 2017, as well as providing training and quality improvement support to funded providers. COSLA is currently working with Scottish Government to review the rate-setting process to consider any further lessons and possible improvements. We also note the Scottish Government committed in their recent programme for government to pay £12 per hour to those delivering funded ELC from April 2024. COSLA will engage constructively with the Scottish Government to consider implementation of this commitment. Local government remains committed to working together with our partners to further strengthen ELC provision to support the best possible experiences and outcomes for children and their families. 
This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday, the 4th of October, 2023, from the business section. West of Orkney Wind Farm bids for consent from ministers. This article is by Brian Donnelly. A major wind farm development off Scotland has reached a key milestone. The West of Orkney Wind Farm has submitted comprehensive offshore consent applications to Scottish ministers for a proposed facility that promises to reshape and reinvigorate Scotland's supply chain. It comes after the West of Orkney Wind Farm secured the development rights to an area of seabed from Crown Estate Scotland in the Scott Wind leasing process to bring forward an offshore wind farm 30 kilometres west of the Orkney mainland and 25 kilometres north of the Sutherland coast. The project will have up to 125 turbines on fixed foundations, an expected capacity of around 2 gigawatts and aims to deliver the first power in 2029. It is being developed by a joint venture comprising Corio Generation, Total Energies and Renewable Infrastructure Development Group. The West of Orkney Wind Farm is the first Scott Wind project to have applied for consent, having achieved this milestone only 20 months after being awarded the site. Jack Farnham, Development Manager, said, Our vision is to develop a world-leading offshore wind farm that will spearhead the decarbonisation of the Scottish economy and play a pivotal role in fostering growth, empowerment and prosperity for local communities. Any project which intends to power around 2 million homes cannot be undertaken in isolation from the communities in which it will operate. Over the last two years, we've organised 33 public events, reaching over 2,400 residents across Caithness, Sutherland and Orkney. He said the event served as a platform for the community to actively participate and engage with the project's design that resonates with local needs and aspirations. Mr Farnham continued, This application outlines our commitment to safeguard marine habitats, protect wildlife and minimise any potential disturbances to the local ecosystem. It includes a biodiversity enhancement plan setting out how the West of Orkney wind farm will positively interact over the long term with the environment of the area in which we operate. Moreover, it highlights our proactive approach to engaging with local communities to foster sustainable development and create a positive legacy across generations. The submission includes applications for consent under the Electricity Act 1989 and marine licence applications under the Marine Scotland Act 2010. Accompanying consent applications is an extensive suite of assessments based on survey data collected over two and a half years. The Applications Environmental Impact Assessment Report has been managed through the Zodus Group Stromness Office, and draws on the collective expertise and passion of 30 specialist subcontractors who have been instrumental in conducting extensive and thorough assessments of the environmental impact and proposing measures to avoid, reduce, monitor and manage potential challenges where necessary. 
Errol Scotland, recorded on Wednesday, 4th of October 2023. Arts and Entertainments. Happy Mondays, Glasgow. Band to start touring city in March. By Jodie Harrison, reporter. Rock band The Happy Mondays have announced their first UK headline tour in five years and are set to perform 16 dates across England, Scotland and Wales in 2024. During the Been There Done That tour, the band will be joined by fellow 1990s music artists in Spiral Carpets and Stereo MCs. The tour will begin in Glasgow on March 14, with the band set to perform in Nottingham, Newcastle, Bristol, Manchester and Leeds amongst other cities. Other dates include a show at Troxy in London on April 6, Liverpool's Mountford Hall on April 13 and a show at the Brighton Dome on April 14 to finish off the tour. The hometown date at Manchester's O2 Victoria Warehouse will take place in April 4. Happy Mondays is comprised of frontman Sean Ryder, percussion master Mark Berry, better known as Bez, vocalist Rueta, guitarist Mark Day, drummer Gary Whelan and keyboard player and guitarist Dan Broad. Ryder said, we're really looking forward to the Happy Mondays first headline tour for five years. We'll be playing all the hits for everyone, so it's going to be a lot of fun. See you there. Bez said, can't wait to get on tour with Happy Mondays, shake your maracas in the air like you just don't care. Rowetta added, me and my voice can't wait to sing all across the UK for a tour to remember. During the tour, the group will perform some of their classic hits including 24-hour party people, Step On, Hallelujah, Loose Fit and Judge Fudge. There will also be shows taking place in Northampton, Birmingham, Bournemouth, Southend, Cardiff, Cambridge and Sheffield. Happy Mondays signed to Tony Wilson's Factory Records in the late 1980s and blended their love of funk, rock, psychedelia and house with sounds from the UK's emerging rave scene. In 2016, the band won the Ivor Novello Inspiration Award and in recent years, members Ryder and Bez have been spotted in episodes of Channel 4's Celebrity Gogglebox. Tickets for the Happy Mondays Been There Done That Tour will go on sale at 10am on Friday, October 6th, available from the Happy Mondays website by Jodie Harrison. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 5th of October 2023. Arts and Entertainments. The Sleepless Liam Bell Book Review by Alistair Mabbitt. The Sleepless Liam Bell Fly in the Wall £10.99. Liam Bell can write an arresting opening. In The Sleepless... His fourth novel, The Curtain Rises in a Gathering of Members of a Cult Dedicated to Banishing Sleep from Their Lives, or at least Restricting It to the Bare Minimum, so that they can make the most of their time on Earth and liberate themselves from the global sedation imposed on them by society. Their leader, Swami Ravi, has summoned them to witness the new method he has devised for releasing toxins from the brain, which involves plunging an electric drill into a volunteer's forehead. It's predictably messy and fatal, but Ravi is not deterred. He'll find a second willing subject and try again. Grafton. He never uses his first name anymore. Lost his wife Liz to the sleepless cult several years earlier. Before alcoholism cost him his career and his marriage, he was a journalist, but now at 57, he manages a traffic desk at a Glasgow radio station. His wife's holidays for him and her son Isaac became longer and more frequent until eventually she never came back giving up her old life to join Swami Ravi. The shock sobered him up, and he's been a devoted single dad to Isaac ever since. One day, when a woman phones the radio station to talk about a sleepless commune near Ardmurkin, Grafton sees an opportunity to find out more about the cult 
that ensnared his wife and perhaps get an article out of it that could ease his way back into journalism. Leaving the teenage Isaac a paltry £20 to last him until he gets back, Grafton enrolls in the commune for a few days with a tape recorder hidden in his robe. He has arrived at an auspicious time. Ravi himself is currently in prison, and this new offshoot is inspired by his beliefs is led by the charismatic but fragile Joan, and kept in line by her enforcer, ex-soldier Eddie. Joan is in the middle of a 12-day stretch without sleep, the conclusion of which will mark a great leap forward for the movement. Trying to keep a low profile in the midst of a paranoid community, Grafton cautiously collects information oblivious to the fact that his decision to infiltrate it will have serious repercussions for himself, his son and his estranged wife who is, unknown to him, heading back to Scotland. Lizzie's task is to ensure that this new spin-off is staying true to Ravi's teachings and to bring it back on message if necessary, and while she's in the country she intends to drop in on the son she abandoned to see how he's doing. She has no idea that Grafton is currently in the commune, at least not at first. As a thriller of the sleepless genuinely gets the pulse racing, especially when the tension between the commune and its neighbouring village escalates to a war footing, but it derives much of its strength from the central triangle of Grafton, Isaac and Liz, and the dynamic each establishes with Joan. Lizzie's return after years away upsets the balance between Grafton and his son, especially now that Isaac feels Grafton has left him in the lurch, and while Liz comes blazing into the commune to lay down the law, setting a paranoid group even more on edge, her detached, tough-love attitude towards Isaac leaves him vulnerable to Joan's manipulation. Bell has points to make about cults and conspiracy theorists, but the thrills here are driven by characterisation and family dynamics, and it's all the more gripping for it. By Alistair Mabbott. This is from the Herald on Thursday the 5th of October 2023. From the news section. Rishi Sunak Conservative Conference Speech. The Key Points. This article is written by Gabriel Mackay. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak delivered his speech to the Conservative Party Conference in Manchester on Wednesday. Introduced by his wife, Akshata Murti, the Tory leader addressed topics such as Brexit, the economy, infrastructure, smoking and Scottish independence. Here are the main takeaways from Mr Sunak's speech to the Tory party conference. HS2 scrapped. As expected, the Prime Minister finally confirmed that the high-speed rail line meant to connect London to Manchester would, in fact, stop at Birmingham. Announcing the scrapping of the northern leg of the project while on stage in Manchester was probably not how Mr Sunak would have chosen to announce the controversial move but he said that the facts have changed and the right thing to do when the facts change is to have the courage to change direction. The Prime Minister said he would spend every single penny of the £36 billion saved from the scrapping of the northern leg of HS2 on new transport projects in the North and Midlands. Mr Sunak said, Our plan will drive far more growth and opportunity here in the North than a faster train to London ever would. And, given how far along construction is, we will complete the line from Birmingham to Euston, and yes, HS2 trains will still run here to Manchester, and journey times will be cut between Manchester, Birmingham, London, by 30 minutes. And I say this to Andy Street, 
a man I have huge admiration and respect for. I know we have different views on HS2, but I also know we can work together to ensure a faster, stronger spine, quicker trains and more capacity between Birmingham and Manchester. In terms of what the money would be spent on, Mr Sunak said, We'll build the Midlands Rail Hub connecting 50 different stations. We will help Andy Street extend the West Midlands Metro. We will build the Leeds Tram. We will electrify the North Wales Main Line, upgrade A1, the A2, the A5, the M6. We will connect our union with the A75, boosting links between Scotland and Northern Ireland. Shots at Keir Starmer The Labour leader has been criticised by the left of his party for abandoning a number of key pledges, including nationalisation of the rail network, abolishing tuition fees and raising the top rate of income tax. Mr Sunak said his party aren't going to do any of those things, but it appears that the line of attack on Mr Starmer, heading into an expected election next year, will be that he's, well, a bit sleek it. The Tory leader said, you just cannot know what you are going to get with him. The only thing that's certain is that it won't be what he is promising you. But the worst thing about Sir Keir is that he just says whatever he thinks will benefit him the most. Doesn't matter whether he can deliver it. Doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter if he said the opposite just a few weeks or months ago. He is the walking definition of the 30-year-old political status quo I am here to end. That is why we have to beat him. And, conference, that is why we will. Smoking Age Proposal Mr Sunak also confirmed a proposal to effectively ban cigarettes for those under a certain age by raising the legal age for a packet by one year every year. He said there would be a free vote, but the decision could save more lives than any other decision we take. Asylum Seekers The government has been making noises about withdrawing from the European Convention on Human Rights, something Home Secretary Suella Braverman addressed in her own speech on Tuesday. Speaking of the government's controversial plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda, Mr Sunak said he was confident the scheme was in line with international law. However, he said, I will do whatever is necessary to stop the boats. Independence The Prime Minister also addressed the issue of Scottish independence, appearing to take a shot at the police probe into the finances of the SNP. Echoing Michael Gove's speech on Tuesday, Mr Sunak said, The forces of separation are in retreat across our country. Nicola Sturgeon wanted to go down in the history books as the woman who broke up our country, but it now looks like she may go down for very different reasons. That article was written by Gabriel Mackay. This is from the Herald on Thursday the 5th of October 2023 from the news section. UK immigration policy sees more than 1,000 in Scotland destitute. This article is written by Gabriel Mackay. Over 1,000 people in Scotland received financial support due to destitution caused by the UK government's immigration policy, a study has found. 
There has been a sharp reported rise in eviction cases going through the Glasgow Sheriff Court, brought by Home Office accommodation provider Mears Housing, following a decision to shorten the eviction process for people seeking asylum in dispersal accommodation, raising concerns among campaigners that lock-change evictions previously used by Serco could resume. Serco's policy between 2012 and 2019 meant locks on people's homes could be changed without notice if they were no longer eligible for asylum support, effectively forcing them into immediate street homelessness. Fairway Scotland, which was set up to mitigate the effects of the UK government's immigration policies, said 1,205 people excluded from state support access its services in Glasgow, Edinburgh and Aberdeen, including 730 who received casework support in an effort to regularise their immigration status and protect them from being homeless or forced onto the streets. Six people were accommodated by the partnership in Glasgow with linked £50 weekly cash payments because they were excluded from all forms of public support. 60 people in Glasgow, 291 in Edinburgh and 21 in Aberdeen accessed support and advice. The report from Heriot Watt University's iSphere Institute, funded by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, calls on the UK government to overhaul their hostile immigration policies and commit to ending destitution by design. It also urges the Scottish Government to show clearer political leadership by setting out concrete plans to fully mitigate the harm these policies create. The report's author, Beth Watts-Cobb, Senior Research Fellow at iSphere, said, Our report shows the distance travelled in the first year of the partnership, despite political and economic uncertainty, tight council budgets and high housing demand, and the priorities ahead. Intolerance of rust sleeping and destitution is a marker of a civilised society. The UK and Scottish governments will rightly be judged on taking the harms experienced by those with no recourse to public funds or welfare support seriously. Deborah Hay, Senior Policy Advisor, Scotland, at the Joseph Roundry Foundation, said, Destitution should never be a tool of public policy, yet... The UK government is doing just that by locking people out of essential support, inflicting needless misery on thousands of people who want to make Scotland their home. Fairway partners have demonstrated that ending destitution in Scotland is possible, despite the challenges. Scaling up Fairway is now critical given the rising demand for help, but mitigation programmes like this shouldn't be necessary. The UK government must commit to an urgent change of course and end destitution by design. Sabir Zazai, CEO of Scottish Refugee Council, said Safe housing and legal advice is more important than ever as the UK government continues to pursue hostile policies and deny people their basic human rights. As we see a deeply concerning rise in people seeking protection, being evicted from their homes. This report highlights some of the proactive ways people at risk of homelessness can be supported. 
That article was written by Gabriel Mackay. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 5th of October, from the sports section, Josh Kerr leads Scottish Athlete of the Year nominations by sports writer Susan Ecclestaff. Josh Kerr leads nominations for Scotland's Athlete of the Year, with the winner being announced at the Scottish Athletics 4G Annual Award Ceremony at the end of the month. Kerr became 1500 metres world champion in August and leads a shortlist that also includes his fellow world championships finalist Neil Gurley, Laura Muir and Jim Arike. Completing the Athlete of the Year shortlist is mountain runner Scott Adkin, who is currently ranked 5th in the world. At the awards, which will take place in Glasgow on the 28th of October, and will have Olympic and world medalist Ailey Doyle as the guest of honour, three world champions will battle to become Para-Athlete of the Year in the shape of Samantha Kinghorn, Gavin Drysdale and Ben Sandilands. The Under-20 award is between Natasha Phillips, Dean Patterson and Cal McLeod, while the Masters Athlete of the Year shortlist is made up of Andy Douglas, Paul Forbes and Alistair Walker. And the article was by Susan Egglestaff. This is from the Herald Scotland on Friday the 6th of October 2023. From the news section. Rishi Sunak. Police Scotland taking no action over Sturgeon comments. Report by Jodie Harrison. Police Scotland have said no action is being taken against the Prime Minister after the Alba party complained about a comment he made about Nicola Sturgeon. The party, led by Alex Salmond, made a complaint against Rishi Sunak, who poked fun at the former First Minister after she was arrested and questioned as part of Police Scotland's investigation into her party finances, dubbed Operation Branchform. Ms Sturgeon was released without charge following her arrest in June. Chris McKelney, General Secretary of the Alba Party, reported Mr Sunak to the force for contempt of court allegations on Wednesday. The Conservative leader, who was addressing his party's conference in Manchester, made the comments as he claimed the union between Scotland and the rest of the UK was the strongest it has been in a quarter of a century, with the Prime Minister adding that the forces of separatism are in retreat. Mr McElhinney said that Operation Branchform should be free to pursue its investigation fearlessly, without interference from Rishi Sunak, adding as a result he was formally complaining about the offence of contempt of court, requesting a police investigation. The Alba General Secretary stated, The Prime Minister is commenting on and making an assumption about a live Police Scotland investigation. In Scotland, contempt applies from arrest, not from charging. Operation Branchform is investigating serious matters of the utmost importance in Scotland and trust in politics. It is too important a matter to allow interference from the Prime Minister in this act of contempt when many people await the facts of Police Scotland's investigation. However, Police Scotland confirmed on Thursday they would be taking no action against the Prime Minister for the comments. A Police Scotland spokesperson said, We have received a complaint and, 
Following consultation with the Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service, no police action is being taken at this time. That report was by Jodie Harrison. From the Herald, Scotland, Saturday the 7th of October, from the news section, Israel at war amid large-scale rocket and ground attack from Gaza, report by Jodie Harrison. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has told Israel that it is at war with Hamas militants that rule the Gaza Strip. Mr Netanyahu's comments in a televised address mark his first since the Gaza Strip's Hamas rulers launched a major, multi-front attack on Israel at daybreak on Saturday. At least 22 Israelis have been killed as fighting broke out this morning. Dozens of gunmen from the Islamic militant group Hamas have infiltrated southern Israel in a surprise attack. The attack comes as thousands of rockets were launched into Israel from Gaza, according to a Hamas leader, Mohammed Diyev. We've decided to say enough is enough, he said. The Israeli Prime Minister ordered a call-up of reservists and promised that Hamas would pay a price that it hasn't known until now. We are at war, Mr Netanyahu said. Not an operation, not a round, but but at war. The Prime Minister also ordered the military to clear the infiltrated towns of Hamas militants that remained locked in gunfights with Israeli soldiers. Hamas fired thousands of rockets at Israel on Saturday and sent dozens of fighters across the country's heavily fortified border, a massive show of force that caught Israel off guard on a major holiday. The serious invasion on Simchat Torah revived memories of the 1973 war practically 50 years to the day in which Israel's enemies launched a surprise attack on Yom Kippur. Comparisons to one of the most traumatic moments in Israeli history sharpened criticism of Mr Netanyahu and his far-right allies, who had campaigned on more aggressive action against threats from Gaza. Political commentators lambasted the government over its failure to anticipate what appeared to be a Hamas attack unseen in its level of planning and coordination. The Israeli Rescue Service said that its medics were tending to 16 casualties in southern Israel, including a woman in her 60s who was killed when a rocket fire from Gaza made a direct hit, and two people in a serious condition. There were reports of many more casualties on both sides, which are slowly becoming apparent. Israeli media reported that dozens of people were taken to hospital in southern Israel. The Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza reported injuries among many citizens without giving numbers and loudspeakers and mosques broadcast prayers of mourning for killed militants. The Israeli military struck targets in Gaza in response to more than 2,000 rockets that sent air raid sirens wailing constantly as far north as Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. The Israeli military confirmed an infiltration had occurred in several locations near the Gaza border. It said its forces were engaged in gunfights with Hamas militants who had infiltrated Israel in at least seven locations. The fighters had sneaked across the separation fence and even invaded Israel through the air with paragliders, the army said. It was not immediately clear what prompted Hamas to launch its attack which came after weeks of simmering tensions along the Gaza frontier. The shadowy leader of Hamas's military wing, Mohammed Yef, announced the start of what he called Operation Al-Aqsa Storm. Enough is enough, 
he said in the recorded message as he called on Palestinians from East Jerusalem to Northern Israel to join the fight. Today, the people are regaining their revolution. In a televised address, Israeli Defence Minister Yoav Gallant warned that Hamas had made a grave mistake and promised that the State of Israel will win this war. The attack comes at a time of historic division within Israel over Mr Netanyahu's proposal to overhaul the judiciary. Mass protests over the plan have sent hundreds of thousands of Israeli demonstrators into the streets and prompted hundreds of military reservists to avoid volunteer duty. Turmoil that has raised fears over the military's battlefield readiness. We are in a state of war, said Kobai Shabti, the Israeli police chief. There is no other explanation. The infiltration of fighters into southern Israel marked a major accomplishment and escalation by Hamas. Millions of people were hunkering down in safe rooms, sheltering from rocket explosions and ongoing gun battles with Hamas fighters. Cities and towns emptied as the military closed roads near Gaza. The army ordered residents near the Palestinian enclave to stay inside while Israel's rescue service appeared to appealed to the public to donate blood. We understand that this is something big, said Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, an Israeli army spokesperson. He said the Israeli military had called up the army reserves. He declined to comment on how Hamas had managed to catch the army off guard. That's a good question, he said. Salah Arouri, an exiled Hamas leader, said the operation was, in a, was a response to the crimes of the occupation. He said fighters were defending the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem and the thousands of Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. In the kibbutz of Nahal Oz, just two miles from the Gaza Strip, terrified residents who were huddled indoors said they could hear constant gunfire echoing off the buildings as firefights continued even hours after the initial attack. With rockets we somehow feel safer, knowing that we have the Iron Dome, missile defence system, and our safe rooms. But knowing that terrorists are walking around communities is a different kind of fear, said Mirjam Raijin, a 42-year-old fa- volunteer firefighter and mother of three in Nahawaz. Israel has built a massive fence along the Gaza border, meant to prevent infiltrations. It goes deep underground and is equipped with cameras, high-tech sensors and sensitive listening technology. The escalation comes after weeks of heightened tensions along Israel's volatile border with Gaza and heavy fighting in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. It also comes at a delicate time for Mr Netanyahu's far-right government. The divisions within army ranks have threatened to undermine Mr Netanyahu's reputation as a security expert who would do anything to protect Israel and the cohesion of an institution crucial to the stability of a country locked in low-intensity conflicts on multiple fronts, fronts and facing threats from Lebanon's Hezbollah melting group. Hezbollah congratulated Hamas, praising the attack as a response to Israeli crimes and saying the militants had divine backing. The group said its command in Lebanon was in contact with Hamas about the operation. Israel has maintained a blockade over Gaza since Hamas seized control of the territory in 2007. The bitter enemies have fought four wars since then. There have also been numerous rounds of smaller fighting between Israel and Hamas and other smaller militant groups based in Gaza. The blockade, 
which restricts the movement of people and goods in and out of Gaza, has devastated the territory's economy. Israel says the blockade is needed to keep militant groups from building up their arsenals. The Palestinians say the closure amounts to collective punishment. The rocket fire comes during a period of heavy fighting in the West Bank, where nearly 200 Palestinians have been killed in an Israeli military raid this year. In the volatile Northern West Bank, scores of militants and residents poured onto the streets in celebration at the news of the rocket bandages. Israel says the raids are aimed at militants, but stone-throwing protesters and people not involved in the violence have also been killed. Palestinian attacks on Israeli targets have killed more than 30 people. The tensions have also spread to Gaza, where Hamas-like activists held violent demonstrations along the Israeli border in recent weeks. Those demonstrations were halted in late September after international mediation. And that report was by Jodie Harrison. From the Herald Scotland, Saturday the 7th of October, from the news section, updated, Scotland weather, flood danger to life warning issued by SEPA, report by Jodie Harrison, Scotland's environmental watchdog has issued a danger to life warning amid a major rainfall event affecting many parts of the country. The Scottish Environment Protection Agency, SEPA, has issued more than 50 flood alerts and flood warnings, the more serious category, with relentless rain predicted over the Southern Highlands and Western Central Belt. People have been advised to take precautions and not expect a normal wet autumn day, and to check SEPA's flood updates regularly. As of 1pm, 17 flood alerts have been put in place across much of Scotland, including Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Argyll and Butte, Fife and the Borders. Almost 50 flood warnings, which apply more locally, have been issued including for Queen's Drive, Newmill Road and Samson Avenue in Kilmarnock, Bridge of Allen, Arborfoyle and Cramond. People concerned about rising water are urged to check the SEPA website for the latest advice. The heavy rain has sparked huge disruption across Scotland's rail network, with stations flooded and lines closed across the country. Police Scotland has also advised against travel in Argyll and Butte due to the weather, which has caused landslips on the A83 between Loch Gilpeth and Tarbrit. The Met Office has issued an amber weather warning for a large part of central Scotland, while a yellow weather warning covers most of the country. Ruth Ellis, Flood Duty Manager for the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, SEPA, said, a major rainfall event is expected to bring significant prolonged heavy rain throughout Saturday over the Southern Highlands and Western Central Belt, with more heavy rain in the north on Sunday. As a result, we are likely to see extensive river and surface water flooding impacts across those areas. Danger to life, widespread property flooding, flooding of roads and disruption of infrastructure is possible. We would advise people living and working in the affected areas to consider any steps they need to take to be now to be prepared for flooding impacts and consider whether their journey is necessary. She added, regional flood alerts and more locally specific flood warnings have been issued. More local flood warnings will be issued as required. We will continue to keep a very close eye on the situation, monitoring 24-7 as well as working closely with the Met Office and other partner agencies. 
we would strongly advise people to sign up to Floodline to receive free updates for where they live or travel through directly to their phone. People can also check our flood updates for all the latest information and the three-day Scottish flood forecast to see what conditions are expected further ahead. On Saturday morning, SEPA's Vincent Fitzsimmons, SEPA, said the impact of the rain was already beginning to be felt. He told the BBC's Good Morning Scotland programme, We are expecting widespread flooding through today, Saturday and into Sunday morning. He added, It's very heavy rain, but it will be relentless for a particularly long period of time. This is not just a normal wet autumn day. We are concerned about the possibility of significant flooding. There is that amber area. It goes from the western half of the central belt up through into the highlands. There are communities there which we have quite, where we have quite significant concerns. In an article written by Jodie Harrison. From the Herald Scotland, Saturday the 7th of October, from the sports section, Celtic 3, Kilmarnock 1, Instant Reaction to the Burning Issues, by Graham McGarry. Celtic overcame a relate rally from Kilmarnock to stretch their advantage at the top of the Premiership table as goals from Rio Hitati, Lewis Palma and Greg Taylor made sure the three points stayed in Glasgow. David Watson had hit a counter for Kelly in the second half to temporarily reduce their rears and bring the visitors within a goal of the champions, but any hope of a shock was short-lived. Here are the talking points from a sodden Celtic park. Palmer makes big impression on a first league start. It was somewhat surprising that Celtic manager Brendan Rodgers opted for Yang over Palmer in the left of his attack from the start against Lazio, citing his physicality, but it was no surprise to see the Honduran in from the get-go here after an impressive cameo from the bench on Wednesday night. He seized his opportunity to impress, showing more of a willingness to run at defenders than has been evident in his fleeting appearances to date and displaying good understanding and linking up with his teammates. He capped off his display with a brilliant second for Celtic, pouncing on Joe Wright's error and making the most of his good fortune as he played the ball off at Hattie for an inadvertent 1-2. When the ball rebounded back to him, he took a second to steady himself and then curled a beauty into the top right-hand corner past the despairing dive of Will Dennis. Celtic manager Rogers has said many kind things about Derek McInnes of late, talking up the Kelly manager to step into the dugout on the other side of Glasgow, but none of the organisation defensive, Rogers so admires in his opponent's teams, was on show here. Quite the opposite, in fact, as the visitors made an already difficult task all the harder for themselves by helping Celtic on the way and to their opening two goals. Due credit has to go to Hatate for the first, mind you, with the midfielder showing brilliant feet to drag the ball away from Watson and send him for a hot dog. He drove towards the box and couldn't quite believe his luck as the Kelly defender simply stepped out of his way. He wasn't about to pass up the invitation to shoot and he duly placed the ball into the bottom right-hand corner of Dennis's goal. Quite what Wright was doing for Celtic second, though, only he knows, attempting a pass that was never on and being punished accordingly by Palmer. Celtic's third goal to quell Kelly's late fight back was poor from their perspective too as Taylor tapped home in acres of space from a simple Dyson Meada flick from a corner. 
The refereeing team upset both camps with a couple of decisions, with Kelly annoyed about a possible offside for Celtic's second goal, and the host perturbed when they overturned a penalty awarded for an apparent foul by Watson on Hanhati. As for the first call, Kelly may have had justifiable cause for complaint. When Palmer plays the ball forward to Hatati, the midfielder does appear to be leaning offside. The goal was checked by VAR team David Dickinson and John McCrossin, but after a short delay it was awarded, much to the surprise and frustration of McInnes in the Kelly dugout. In fairness to referee Matthew McDermott and the VAR team, it looked to be the correct call to overturn his on-field decision when it came to the spot kick, which looked soft in first viewing. On closer inspection, it seemed to be Hatati who initiated the contact and Kelly almost made the most of their lifeline. Kelly has really struggled to make any sort of impression on the game in the opening 45 minutes and, at 2-0 at the interval, it appeared simply a case of how many Celtic were going to win by. Indeed, they had a couple of let-offs early in the second half too, as both Hatati and Kyogo Furuhashi went close, but they hung in there and eventually made something of a fist clawing their way back into the game. A tweak to their system allowed the hitherto isolated Kyle Vassell to link up with substitute Liam Polworth, who slipped the ball through to the tireless Watson as he was marauding into the Celtic box. The youngster kept his cool to slip the ball under Joe Hart and suddenly, it was briefly game on. But Celtic soon overcame that wobble, as Kelly conspired to shoot themselves in the foot once more. It seems a little unfair on Taylor to call him a left-back, seeing as he was only nominally playing the position. He was here, there and everywhere, as he harried and pressed up high up the pitch out of possession and continuously supported the attack as Celtic pinned Kelly in. Taylor, like a few of his teammates, had something of a sluggish start to the season, but his performance in the win over Livingston a couple of weeks ago seems to have sparked him back to life and, along with Atati and Palma, he was once again one of Celtic's best performers. He capped it off by popping up with a late goal against his former club, and an important one at that, tapping home the killer third from close range after peeling around the back at a corner. An injury to Kieran Tierney may well allow Taylor to get some game time for his country in the forthcoming matches against Spain and France, and, on this evidence, he is more than capable of making his mark at that level too. And that was a report by Graham McGarry. From the Herald Scotland, Saturday the 7th of October, from the sports section, football. Hearts 2, Hibernian 2, instant reaction to the burning issues. Report by Matthew Lindsay. What was that at Hibs falling apart again? Hearts were just a collapse of, of the kind their age-old city adversaries have become notorious for over the years in a cinch premiership match which they were comfortable with the better side in at, Na- at Tynecastle this afternoon, to squander the chance to move to third place in the table. Stephen Naismith's team deservedly forged two ahead in the opening Edinburgh derby of the season, thanks to a spectacular Alan Forrest effort in the first half and a Christian Dodge own goal in the second. However, two strikes from Eli Yuan in the space of two minutes ere Nick Montgomery's side a draw which seemed unlikely in the extreme as they were completely outclassed during the opening hour. The Leith Cubs fans stayed long after the final whistle to applaud their heroes and chanted the song which is so often aimed in their direction in glee. Here are five talking points from the Edinburgh Derby. 
forest fire. The Heartswinger broke the deadlock with a sensational strike his elder brother James, the Celtic and Scotland wide man, would have been proud of. The former Air United and Livingston man cut inside from the right touchline, outsprinted Jorben Obita and rifled an unstoppable left foot shot, shot into the top left corner of the net from fully 25 yards out. The stadium erupted as the scorer was mobbed by his delirious teammates. It was the first time the 27-year-old had been on target in the 2023-24 campaign. He failed to add to his tally but will take confidence from his screamer. It will be a contender for goal of the season come May. Hearts Howlers There was nothing that Hibs keeper David Marshall could do about the Hearts opener, but it had very much been coming. Alex Lowry, Toby Sibbick and Warren Shanklin had all gotten close before it. Naismith's charges dominated the middle of the park and bossed the game as a result. Lowry was responsible for a second after after half-time when his attempt took a deflection of Dodge. It looked very much like they were going to coast to another three points. They paid a high price for switching off and letting Yuan into net an improbable quick-fire double. Shankland, Benny Baringami and Kel Rose all went close at 2-2, but they were unable to get a third. They only have themselves to blame for the final outcome. Hebb's grit. Montgomery had overseen two draws and two defeats in his first four matches in charge of Hebb's, but it was difficult to see why during the opening hour. His team were not in the game whatsoever. They failed to seriously test Hart's goalkeeper Xander Clark and were fortunate to be only two behind. Their fight back came out of nowhere and fizzled out, a Joe Newell shot that was easily saved aside as quickly as it had started. Still, they did enough to earn a hard-fought draw and a point the fall was certainly headed home happily. Kingsley Blow The only negative for Hearts in the first half they controlled was the injury to which Stephen Kingsley suffered. The defender was stretched off with his head in his hands after pulling up with a muscle strain. Odell Lafaya came on in his place and worked hard thereafter but Naismith will be hoping the experienced Scotland internationals is not sidelined for too long. Would they have squandered their two-goal lead if he had still been on the pitch? Scotland's number one derby. With Celtic and Rangers continue to squabble like schoolchildren about ticket allocations for away supporters in old firm games, the meeting between Hips, Hearts and Hibs has become the top derby in the country. The complete absence of away fans at Ibrox and Parkhead has resulted in the showdown between the Glasgow Giants being plaged down to a strange and often subdued atmosphere. There was nothing strange or subdued about Tynecastle this afternoon. With fans of the Eastern Road outfit filling every available seat in the Roseburn stand and the rest of the Gorgie ground completely sold out, this was football as it should be. The action on the sodden playing surface was frenetic. Tackles flew in left, right and centre, and referee Willie Collum had to show three yellow cards in the opening 20 minutes. There was some decent play too. The spectators lapped it up and generated quite a down from kick-off to the final whistle. The pitch invasion by Hibs fans after Ewan had levelled the encounter was highly unfortunate and could have turned very ugly indeed if their Hearts counterparts had encroached onto the playing surface as well. But it was quickly dispersed by police and stewards. There has been criticism of Sky Sports for declining to show the Edinburgh Derby live and the satellite broadcaster decision was disappointing. Still, 
There was much to be said for having this famous fixture at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Celtic and Rangers directors should take note, strive to settle their differences and try to fix their diminished derby. And that report was by Matthew Lindsay. This is from the Herald Scotland on Monday the 9th of October 2023 from Voices section. Doug Moore, to make things better, we need to make things. The six-month trial removing peak time fares on Scotland's railways was much in last week's news. Very welcome for regular commuters, I'm sure, but was it worthy of the coverage and hype? At the end of the day, will it improve services for the rest of us? Will it contribute to a system matching those in other countries? A country's transport infrastructure and operation, particularly its railways, tell us much about its economic, social, educational, engineering and construction capacity. Given our diminished circumstances, last week's decision to scrap HS2 north of Birmingham was sensible. It was also a sad reflection on our current and future ability to deliver major engineering and construction projects. Although not a regular user, I had cause to travel by rail last week. It was okay. Just. Probably not all that different from similar journeys of 20 years ago. By coincidence, a relative has had recent experience of train travel in China. We compared experiences. She described, for example, being marshalled on a numbered section of the platform, a bit authoritarian perhaps, but effective. When her train pulled in, on time to the second, the number on both her ticket and the carriage door directly in front of her corresponded to that on the platform. Boarding was quiet and orderly, and the train departed on time. The carriage and seats were immaculate. Without exception, passengers respected the space and sensitivities of fellow travellers. Rather different from my recent journey from Glasgow Queen Street, where raucous laughter and loud telephone conversations, even in the quiet coach, were de rigueur. I've also been interested in Jane MacDonald's recent series, Lost in Japan. In particular, her experiences on Japanese state-of-the-art railways, a world away from the UK's miserable intercity experience. The Japanese have no intention of resting on their laurels. Plans are well advanced for the introduction of driverless Shinkansen trains travelling at around 300 kilometres per hour. All by 2028, 200 million yen has been earmarked for the project. Will they make the ambitious deadline? Would they have successfully completed HS2? Of course they would though it's probably a tad early for Aslev to be losing sleep over driver job losses on ScotRail. The unsatisfactory state of our railways is due to many factors, principally a chronic shortage of design, technological and construction capacity. Like so many other things, those failings can be traced directly back to 1980s government policies and actions. Present-day technological and construction enfeeblement arose from past and present failures of vision, planning and funding. From the 80s onwards, we were no longer to make and build things. The future was spivs and sharp suits bawling down phones. In that brave new world, scientists, engineers and builders were far less worthy than bankers and hedge fund managers, their relative value measured in much poorer remuneration. Economic sclerosis was inevitable. The old saying, use them or lose them, is demonstrably true when it comes to manufacturing and construction skills. 
How did one of the world's great shipbuilding nations lose the will and skills to build two small ferries? Can those skills possibly be recaptured and relearned? I scanned the Prime Minister's speech for any recognition that lost skills were even a factor in the failure to deliver HS2 in full. There was no reference to a national strategy to redress the balance. I haven't analysed the professional experience of Cabinet members, but I would bet the House on very few having a background in engineering and construction. They're not big on those things at Eton and Oxbridge. Without being disrespectful of the service sector's contribution to the economy, it can never drive what is required. For the UK to regain international credibility, it must demonstrate it can deliver major projects such as HS2. That requires major reprioritisation and mobilisation of education, training and the wider economy. If we are serious about the nuts and bolts of the economy and making things better, we need to relearn how to make things. That report was by Doug Marr. This is from the Herald Scotland on Monday the 9th of October 2023 from Voices section. Scotland Census Reveals Population Shifts Report by Graeme Roy, Professor of Economics Last month, early results from the 2022 Scottish Census were published, providing the first insights into how our country has changed over the last decade. As has been well documented, this current census ran into some trouble. Unlike their counterparts in England and Wales, the Scottish compilers the National Records of Scotland, recommended to ministers that the census date was delayed from 2021 to 2022 as a result of COVID-19. However, in the end, the Scottish response rate of 90% turned out to be significantly lower than that in England and Wales. A high response rate improves the accuracy of the overall census. But it is particularly important for the level of confidence it gives us in the data at a more refined level whether that be for small groups in society, local areas or minority communities. Fortunately, statisticians can draw upon modern techniques and administrative data to help improve accuracy, particularly for groups who may be difficult to reach through traditional surveys. For the headline results, we can therefore be confident in the picture that is painted of Scotland's population. And that picture is one of significant change in the structure of our population. Scotland's population continues to grow, but at a slower rate than in England and Wales. Many more of us are living alone. On average, our population is ageing too. Back in 1971, there were around double the number of children aged under 15 as there were people aged 65 and over. In 2022, there are around 250,000 more people aged 65 plus than those aged under 15. The location of our population is changing as well. A key trend, evident in the early 2000s but accelerating in the 2010s, has been a relative shift in balance toward the east of the country. Collectively, the local authorities of Edinburgh, Midlothian and East and West Lothian have seen their populations grow by nearly 70,000 since 2011. To put that in context, that is more than the entire population of Clackmannanshire or around 90% of the population of Inverglyde. Others have seen their population decline. Moreover, compared to a Scottish average of 20%, 
in Argyll and Butte, Dumfries and Galloway, and the Western Isles, around 27% of the population is now aged 65+. plus. At the Scottish Fiscal Commission, we have been stressing the need for a debate on the long-term implications of Scotland's changing population structure for our ability to afford the public services that we all depend upon. The census confirms how pressing this issue has become. We project that over the coming decades, with rising costs and increased demands on the health service, the NHS budget is likely to take up an ever-increasing share of the Scottish budget. Unless taxes go up, or the economy grows faster than health spending, savings in public services will be needed. Of course, the fact that many of us are living longer is one of the great successes of the 20th and early 21st centuries. We need to remember too that demographic pressures are not unique to Scotland, but managing them is our responsibility and comes with a fiscal cost. Just over 10 years ago, both the Christie Commission, chaired by former SDUC leader Campbell Christie, and the Independent Budget Review, chaired by former CEO of Scottish Enterprise Crawford Beveridge, warned us of the fiscal pressures from an ageing population. Christie implored Scotland's political leaders to focus upon, amongst other principles, a shift to prevention and a bearing down on inefficiencies and a lack of integration in service provision. The census confirms that the structure of our population is changing and that the pace of this change is likely to accelerate in the years to come. Are our public services ready to change too? Graham Roy is Professor of Economics at the University of Glasgow's Adam Smith Business School and chairs the Scottish Fiscal Commission. This is from the Herald Scotland on Monday the 9th of October 2023 from Voices section. The Diary A Bit of Anger Management Report by Lorne Jackson Anger Management The other evening... Josh Addison from East Cobride was in the kitchen chatting with his wife June, who mentioned that earlier in the day she had met up with a close friend who was now, alas, our formerly close friend. The two women had somehow become embroiled in a fierce argument, leading June's pal to stomp out the restaurant. Josh was entirely sympathetic, yet, while making the obligatory consoling noises to his wife, he couldn't help musing to himself about her choice of words for June described her friend as having stormed off in high dudgeon. Says an intrigued Josh, I'm now curious to know if anyone, slightly less aggrieved, has stormed out of a restaurant in low dudgeon, or maybe even moderately middling dudgeon. Human or hound? Movie buff David Donaldson was reading about an American film currently in development. The script includes a dog called Bark Twain, which sounds suspiciously like that bloke who wrote Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Which makes me wonder, said David, what other famous people from all walks of life could be similarly dogified? For starters, he suggests a presidential pooch who goes by the name of Bark Obama. Cartastrophe. The breakdown blues. Despairing reader Tom Harvey gets in touch to tell us Our car broke down on the motorway, which almost reduced me to tears. Thankfully, there's a glimmer of hope to conclude this tale of woe. At least I had a hard shoulder to cry on, says Tom. Class Warrior 
Retired English teacher Beth Anderson was once confronted by an aggrieved pupil who found it exceedingly difficult to understand why he was trapped in a classroom and forced to endure lessons in such a useless subject. The young scholar expressed his dissatisfaction thus, How come you have to teach us English, miss? I've been speaking the lingo for pure yonks. Watery woes. A diary yarn about methods of transport reminds reader Don Marshall of an occasion in the pub when he boasted to a bunch of pals about a summer jaunt to foreign climes where he achieved a long-held ambition to swim with dolphins. One of his pals, not looking especially impressed, merely said, Dolphins swim all the time. I'd be more impressed if he'd been in a tandem with one of them. Scary scran. Time for some seasonal silliness. What do you get if you divide the circumference of a jack-o'-lantern by its diameter? Asks Halloween fan Mark Payne. Almost inevitably, the answer is pumpkin pie. That report was by Lorne Jackson. Herald, on the 10th of October, and the news section. Ultrafast broadband BT Openreach, Scotland's top location, by Ian McConnell. Openreach has revealed the 20 locations in Scotland with its best ultrafast broadband coverage, with London links in five top in the table. Publishing the list, Openreach noted that more than a million homes and businesses can now access ultrafast full-fibre broadband on the company's Scottish digital network. Openreach, a wholly owned subsidiary of BT Group, added, While cities are often perceived to have the best coverage, small towns dominate Openreach's list of hotspots with the highest level of fibre. London Links 5 has the highest coverage in the whole of Scotland, with more than 9 out of 10 properties able to upgrade to ultra-fast broadband. Tranent, on the other side of the fourth, is a fraction behind, and the West Lothian village of Faldhouse is third. Androsson on the North Asia coast, Avonmore in Highland and Findhorn in Moray all make the top 20. In Glasgow, the bill has now passed 125,000 properties, while in Aberdeen, engineers have reused the city's old cable TV network from the 1980s to speed up the rollout. Madrossen is in 14th position, Aviemore is in 18th place, and Findhorn is in the 19th spot. Openreach noticed it's also working with the Scottish and UK governments through the Reaching 100% R100 programme and voucher schemes to take fibre to Scotland's most rural areas and hardest-to-reach properties. It added that upgrades are ongoing from the shores of Loch Neven to islanded communities such as Lesbos and Jura, with R100 build due to start places such as Pip Capel in Aberdeenshire, Hillside in Angus, Balakulish and Cromarty in Highland, and Bursay in Orkney soon. Scottish Government Innovation Minister Richard Lockhead said this is an important milestone in the drive to ensure more homes and businesses across Scotland benefit from full fibre broadband, improving vital connectivity. We are working with Openreach to roll out future-proofed digital infrastructure to our rural towns and villages, and this reaching 100% build, alongside Openreach's commercial network, will underpin economic growth and enhance communities across Scotland for decades to come. And that was by Ian McConnell. The Herald, on the 10th of October, and the news section. Numbers waiting more than half a day in Scottish A&E, worst since May, by Tom Gordon. 
Number of patients waiting too long in Scotland's A&E units has hit a seven-week high, with the number enduring the most extreme waits, the biggest since mid-May. Figures from Public Health Scotland showed more than a third of people attending a casualty ward last week waited more than the official four-hour target. In the week ending October 1, only 66.1% of patients were seen on time, down from 66.3% the week before and 67.4% the week before that. It was the worst Scotland-wide percentage figure since the week ending August 13. Opposition parties demanded SNPL Secretary Michael Matheson get a grip of the problem, especially with waits expected to get even worse in winter. The number of patients waiting more than four hours last week rose from 8,734 to a three-week high of 8,797, as attendance rose from 25,893 to 25,920. The figures also revealed rises in the number of patients waiting more than 8 and 12 hours to be seen in A&E last week. The number of waiting more than 8 hours rose from 2,792 to another three-week high of 2,870 or 11.1% of all patients. However, the number waiting more than half a day jumped from 969 to 1,142, or 4.4% of all patients, the highest number since the 1,191 seen in the week ended May 14. The target is for 95% of patients to be admitted, transferred, or discharged within four hours. It has not been met nationally since July 2020. Tory MSP Dr. Sandesh Gulhain, MSP, said it's utterly unacceptable that the norm is now for a third of patients to be left waiting over four hours in Scotland's A&E departments. These shocking delays are a direct result of dire workforce planning by successive SNP health secretaries and the failure of Humza Yousaf's flimsy NHS recovery plan. We know that these lengthy waits with thousands of patients languishing in A&E for over eight or even over 12 hours can lead to tragic, avoidable deaths. He went on, what makes these figures even more terrifying for overstretched staff and patients is that the peak winter period for Scotland's NHS is still to come. The fear of my colleagues on the front line, shared by the SNP convener of the Health Committee, Claire Hawkey, is that ministers have not learned the lessons from last winter and our health service is not equipped for the increased demands it will inevitably face. Michael Matheson must urgently tackle the crisis before it escalates. The worst performing health board last week was NHS 4 Valley, where 47.8% of patients were seen on time, followed by NHS Lancashire 59.8% and NHS Borders 62.2%. The Royal College of Emergency Medicine has calculated there will be an excess death for every 1 in 72 patients who spend between 8 and 12 hours in an A&E. And that was by Tom Gordon. That concludes this week's edition of the Heron Scotland podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Tune Review and tell your friends about our service.